and welcome to Phoenix Talks, where we get academics and cinephiles to chat with us about past, current, and upcoming films. My name is Becky Jones, and here today we have Matthew Jones, James Russell, Nash Sabanda, and James Hickling, all from the Cinema and Television History Department at DeMontfort University, to talk to us about Blade Runner 2049, the original Blade Runner film, its impact on popular culture and academia, its legacy, and what this new film has done in terms of spectacle, nostalgia, characters, and representation. Hi, I'm Nash Sabanda. I'm doing my PhD at DMU. I am looking at the coming of sound to cinemas in Britain in the 20s and 30s. I'm Jim Russell. I'm Associate Dean at DMU, but I also write on popular American cinema. I'm Matt Jones. I'm Associate Professor of uh, Film Studies at DeMontfort University, and one of the things I write about is the history of science fiction on screen. Hi, I'm James Hickling. I'm just about to finish a Master's by Research, and it is in um, post school for Hollywood combat films. Very interesting. Yeah, all right. So, rather fitting considering uh, earlier discussions we had today, uh, the initial release of the original film was in fact a flop, um, and it was only through like, the release of the director's cut that changed not only the ending, but the reception that increased the popularity of Blade Runner as a film and turned it into the cult favorite that it is now. Um, and I was wondering if any of you could speak to this shift and why it may have happened, and possibly hinting at the, the bit of a surprise disappointment of the release of the new film as well. I mean, I think actually the, the common narrative that you hear about Blade Runner's initial release, that it was a flop, mm. and then it was only the director's cut, um, or the final cut eventually, that mm-hmm. brought it back, and kind of changed its, its, um, the ways in which it's regarded. It's actually a bit misleading. Okay. Um, it was, yeah, it flopped at the box office initially, um, and then gradually started to develop a cult following from that point onwards. Mm. Um, so it, it, mm. it had started to shift its reception by the time that the director's cut came along, and certainly by the time that the, uh, the final cut came along, the final edit. Um, it's not quite as simple as, as it's been portrayed. It, you know, yeah. it goes along those lines, but it's yeah. not quite as simple as, as we often think. It's yeah. a sort of quintessential release of the video age, to ah. be honest, Blade Runner, because you know, you're right, on first release it doesn't do very well. And it's a very expensive film for what it is, a sort of arty, film noir kind of pastiche. Um, but it's released at that just that right moment when home video has a kind of permeation in people's homes. And it's gone from being a, an exclusive technology to fairly common domestic technology. And I think that meant that Blade Runner could have a kind of cult afterlife quite quickly when you know previously it might have taken many years for this film to sort of recirculate and find fans. I remember first watching it on video in the 80s. Mm. Um, at a friend's house. In the middle of the night, we watched Blade Runner. And, and I really associate the film with that kind of moment and that kind of technology. So when the, the director's cut came out, I remember rushing out and buying it. I was a teenager. Mm. Um, I think I must have been 15, because I was just old enough to buy it mm-hmm. in you know the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Um, it sort of cemented its its sort of cult reputation amongst essentially niche fans, science fiction fans and people. But that was a moment of its sort of coronation, I think, rather than it becoming a, a kind of it, it, it being the start of something. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a video film, isn't it? Mm. Like, because yeah, so few people so. saw it at the box office on initial release that it had to take advantage of um, of home release technologies in order to be seen more widely. That's the only real way it could develop a, a cult following before it came back to the cinemas in different forms. I've never seen it at the cinema. Mm. Ever? No, not the original. Wow. Gosh, I, I haven't seen it either. And yeah. also, even as someone who's come to Blade Runner, like, obviously, like, much way well past the 80s as purely something that has existed on home release from mm. the get-go, um, there's a bit in 
2049 when we see a clip of the yeah, original absolutely. and yeah. it struck me as being really weird to see Blade Runner in the cinema which is weird which is strange because it is a film yeah. after all but Blade Runner for me has always existed as this thing that you watch on a small TV in your room mm. um, as, in the dark as opposed to something that yeah. you watch with other people that you don't really know around you absolutely I mean that was my uh, experience of it was my dad having very much similar ex- you know experience as you guys and then um, showing it to me subsequently and me falling in love with it uh, over the last 10 years or so like that and it's just been re-released on blu-ray and 4k i believe as well so we've got that even though we don't have a 4k tv so <laughs> like so many other people we've got like eight or nine versions of yeah. it, including yeah. a hd dvd version which is now defunct <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah but, i mean it, it's been back to cinemas a number mm. of times yeah. over the years it's yeah. not that it had that one initial release and it was done the director's cut came back to cinemas i believe the final cut yeah. came back to cinemas so this is why I was a little surprised when mm-hmm. um, when you said that you'd, you'd not seen it on the cinema screen because mm-hmm. if it was that kind of powerful of a, a memory for you of watching it kind of uh, with a friend at home on, on video mm-hmm. like when it comes back to the cinema it actually it does well at box office both times yeah, on yeah. releases oh, yeah. Yeah. well well is relative but I think uh, much like <laughs> yeah. Nash you know I associate it with watching it at home mm-hmm. I've rewatched it quite a lot probably oh, more than any other yeah. film and um, I think Blade Runner gives you gives you a, a, a sort of m- guide to how to watch it in mm. that sequence where Deckard's at home with his mm. sort of photos <laughs> and, and his whiskey and his whiskey yeah, yeah, and his yeah. cigarette I, I love that moment yeah. and, and I, in some ways I think of that as being a model for how to watch Blade Runner yeah. it's sort of late it's, it's, a lo- it's a film about loneliness and it's quite good to watch on your own in that sort of domestic environment I know, I know that's not how the film is intended yeah. because of course spectacle is so important mm-hmm. to what Blade Runner kind of offers but that's that's my association that's my that's and as a sort of fan in in so far as i am a fan that's that's the nature the 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 perfect viewing experience yeah i feel like it's not a film that lends itself to the sort of communal experience of film watching like you you think of something like rocky horror picture show if you you love that film and you want to recommend it to someone then you'd probably want to recommend a screening of it the the experience of it Mm. whereas blade run is a film where if someone hasn't seen it and i think that they might like it if i think they're going to like it at all because it's a really difficult film to recommend in the first place um Mm. i'd probably just give them a dvd and say go home and watch (laughs) and then come back to me with your complaints <laughs> isn't that bizarre because so much of the discussion around um the new film mm. um around blade runner 2049 um and yet you know you're absolutely right that it's it seems to have flopped at the box office mm. um and like it's done really in, it's in done well terms. they yeah. just had such high hopes that it did not I mean, it is number one at the uk box office but it's not achieved what they'd hoped exactly. it would achieve yeah. Um, but its critical reception has been golden. You mm, know, um, yeah. everyone's loving it. Yeah. Right, it's, the write-ups have been phenomenal. Yeah, and so it's it's so much of that has also focused on spectacle. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been so much discussion of this as a film to see at the cinema rather than a film to see at home. Yeah. So it sits in odd tension to this kind of cultural memory of people of our kind of age group. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that none of us really were of the age to see it at the cinema when it came um, on its initial release. And I wonder whether that's a generational thing and that mm-hmm. actually people who are older than us would have a different relationship to the material. That's true, yeah. It's, it's definitely a film that even, be it big or small screen, the spectacle is most is effective in any size, which is pretty amazing. Well, it's also the first one's quite a contemplative film. It is. So it relies yeah. quite heavily, even if it's not trying to wow you with, with the scale of its yeah. vistas, although it kind of is, 
it's, it's just a film that relies quite heavily on looking at those vistas yeah. as being part of the pleasure yeah. and part of the world building is just watching the world of Blade Runner. Uh, it was it was the impression I got fall, like leaving the new one is kind of like you get a lot more sort of world building in the new one. You feel like it's a bigger, more fleshed out world. But in the first one, it, it, it's you still see all that world, but it's mm. somehow it's kept very tight and clustered because he only has like very brusque interactions with these people in these little pocket spaces. And I think that kind of contributed to that definitely but both of them have just it's still a world that whether you appreciate it as sci-fi or not it's still a very impressive spectacle mm -hmm. either way uh, which leads me to my next question uh, what kind of impact has the original had since its release and and for me the most prominent one is always going to be the ghost in the shell original anime film and obviously the manga where you can almost see like watching it where how the world influenced that space as well um, but I was just wondering what other impacts you think that film had in any capacity when it came out and later on it's sort of cult following I mean it's particularly influential in its depiction of cityscapes mm. it's a film about the city and it really introduces the no it doesn't introduce it follows on from a kind of grand tradition of science fiction films about urban spaces the most famous and, and obvious of which is metropolis yeah and, and really there aren't that many otherwise and then blade runner comes along and i think one of the original titles is metropolis at one point mm. that's what ridley scott wanted to call it there's like seven different yeah. potential wow. titles. dangerous days was one yeah. Dangerous well. yeah um and and that depiction of the the city through the prism of science fiction, the dark, gloomy, kind of sort of ruined, but also massive, city operating on a massive scale, kind of trans, transnational, uh, polluted. All of those, are, they're very much 1980s kind of science fiction tropes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd associate them very much with things like neuromancers and mm -hmm. kinds of science fiction writing. Uh, and, and Blade Runner really feeds into that boom in dystopian science fiction writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and it, you know for a long time afterwards, if you got films that would seek to depict even a remotely similar environment, I remember the Fifth Element coming out. Oh yeah, and, and it was talked about as being okay. So this is yeah. this follows on from Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. It's another kind of science fiction city. Yeah. Um, so it's been very influential in terms of of that. Mm -hmm. What is the future going to look like? Actually, how many films have ever picked up its iconography? Mm. or ran with it I think it's very limited and the fact that it was such a flop <laughs> means it's not like there was a boom of film noir sci-fi movies yeah. afterwards you know That's they true. they um, you don't get that many of them subsequently because mm. who wants to see that stuff right yeah. apart from nerds I, yeah it's, it's, like I can think of animes that have picked up <clears> on that <throat> but I can't think of really western Akira, examples something that comes to mind I know this is me dragging things video games into everything like That's I fine, yeah. do but um, Deus Ex oh, which yeah. is a game uh, very yeah. much centred around like a an urban space which mm -hmm. has been overtaken by augmentation and cyborgs yeah and, and yeah, things really like that is I, I believe HMV at the time if I remember correctly of um, the release of the first reissue of the game or something they were selling um, with if you pre-ordered it you got a copy of Blade Runner for four pounds on blu-ray or something okay. <laughs> it's like a promotion so yeah. I, it, it's quite it's lingering I think yeah. in the subconscious of the genre and, yeah. and actually I think video games is an interesting thing yeah. to bring into it and, and really relevant because of things like Syndicate and Syndicate yes. Wars yeah. Syndicate Wars is explicitly Blade Runner-esque mm. um, in that kind of um, what was it, early 2000s, late 90s? Yeah, I believe so. Um, so it, it plays on those same kind of fantasies and, and neon cityscapes yeah. and, and lone figures in trench coats and so mm. forth. Yeah. Um, 
at the same time, of course, there's Westworld's Blade Runner video game mm-hmm. um, that comes around oh, yeah. uh, in the in the late nineties. Yeah, point um, and click adventure. Isn't <laughs> it? it's, it's great. That, yeah, that it is. is. I really remember <laughs> that. You cannot play it anymore, though. It's um, it, it's too old for most modern uh, systems. Mm. And when Westwood moved, uh, I believe they moved from Las Vegas to LA, mm. which for anyone who's seen the new Blade Runner film is quite silly. Um, <laughs> they moved from Vegas to LA, and in the move they lost, I believe it's something like eight terabytes of data, oh. which would be needed to either rebuild or update the game. So that is a game that yep. is gonna be lost to time oh. very, very soon. Yeah. But it is interesting because of course it draws not on um, the types of games that we're talking about, um, mm-hmm. those kind of um, cityscape, uh, free roaming games, yeah. mm-hmm. but instead draws on things like Monkey Island oh, and Day of the yeah. Tentacle, which are <laughs> LucasArts really very silly and wonderful and brilliant yeah. um, point of click adventures. Great. So it, it does weird things when you introduce mm-hmm. Westwood into mm-hmm. that into that history. It kind of it starts to pull the the legacy of Blade Runner in different directions. But I just I also think that in terms of film. The legacy of Blade Runner is around the cityscape and, and science fiction and so forth, but it's also around film noir in, mm. in terms of its kind of mm. um, reintroductions, neo-noir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you end up in that late 80s moment um, where things like Blue Velvet... Ah, um, yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. Body Heat and all of those mm. films, it's part of that moment. It is, it really is. So, I mean, I'm yeah. not sure whether I trace that as legacy or just Blade Runner sitting within its context. Yeah. But now quite often when we get neo-noiry things mm-hmm. um, there's there's a, particularly though within science fiction there's a legacy back to Blade Runner but even neo-noir more broadly mm-hmm. often draws on at least the mood and atmosphere of Blade Runner mm-hmm. and I'm thinking of things like Black Mirror that does that quite nicely yeah. in parts yeah. yeah and I also think there's like going back to this sort of aesthetic um, of Blade Runner it's not only about um, a future cityscape and its future imagining of what um, mm-hmm. a world might be like, but it's also about that world having decayed mm. yeah. and this idea of looking at the future not as a constant like progress, but as a but as a Death progress rose. to a point, <laughs> and that, that there is always a point by which progress turns into decay. Yeah, um, and I think you can sort of. Um, get a sense of that there's a there's the vaporwave movement in music where there's t- mm. the repurposing mm. of 80s and 90s commercial music which was intended at the time to sound modern and up to date and new and fresh and now being looked at as something nostalgic and something mm. as a remnant of a of a time when the future seemed perhaps optimistic and now looks um, somewhat sinister and somewhat over commercialized um, or the sort of like the lo-fi sort of um, hip-hop movements, this um, idea that you can take this really modern, up-to-date genre of music and apply this level of decay and this level of sort of um, retrograde. Mm-hmm. Um, this, like, that sort of approach. Um, and I feel that um, within Blade Runner, with, even within Blade Runner's music and its aesthetic, the way that it's aged since um, its release, it has come to be this kind of strange relic it's both historic and it's futuristic yeah. um, but it's very much uh, it, I mean firstly Blade Runner was always discussed in film studies as being postmodern, mm. recycling elements of the past and, and you know being about what is it to be human and mm-hmm. you know what is the meaning behind these so that sense of the, the recycled past was already always considered very important and it's an interesting film because it straddles two kind of trends in cinema history I mean on the one hand it's very much part of that late 70s early 80s a new wave of directors who are largely interested in recycling genres, recycling genres from the 40s and 50s, Spielberg, Lucas, with their interest in science fiction, and, and you know, sp- very specifically 30s, 40s style movie tropes, um, Indiana Jones, so even Body Heat, you know, Lawrence Kasdan's 
neo-noir is really trying to recycle and modernise 1940s noir. So Blade Runner completely does that. It does that, so, and in a sort of genre mashup kind mm -hmm. of a way. But in its in its dystopian, you know, leanings and um, the way that it is actually quite a downbeat film, it also bears some imprint of the 1970s kind of film culture. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting transitional vehicle, you know, where Spielberg and Lucas take that kind of recycling mm -hmm. and put it to largely upbeat ends. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner doesn't. No. <laughs> you know, and, and so it has a legacy of the 1970s, much like Scott's Alien yeah, does yeah. as well. I was just going to say, particularly in design terms, it mm. sits within that, yeah. um, that body of films that kind of has Alien, Blade Runner, but also then bleeds into television with things like Red Dwarf, that kind of crumbled, uh, yeah, retrofitted yeah. future. Um, so I think it, it partially kind of legacy, partially influence, but also kind of an afterlife of, of the design ideas that sit within and it. And it's design that's most important yeah. in a way that we haven't talked about, but actually Blade Runner's key triumph really is that it is, much like Alien actually, it is just a triumph of production design. Mm. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, it's that that, that g has given it a lot of its longevity, that it doesn't look or feel staged or, um, you know, half-heartedly created. Yeah. It feels complete when you watch it. And I think in, in certainly in the early phases of his career, this was Ridley Scott's kind of great skill to create these environments. And there's those stories, if you watch the making of, about him asking them to turn pillars upside down and just train, and, and being really on the details. Mm -hmm. And that shows in the film. It is a, a film which rewards a focus on the details because they're so well thought out. And that's what, that, that does make it completely different. That's where it's new. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Planet of the Apes doesn't have that. Soylent <laughs> Green doesn't have that. And those other dystopian science fiction films, none of them feel rich in the way that Blade Runner feels. Yeah. That's interesting because science fiction is often discussed as a literature and a cinema of ideas. That, mm. at least in its early phases, in its kind of mid uh, phase, it, it wasn't really about spectacle. It mm. was about um, ideas. It was about what if you change this one thing, yeah. what then happens to the world. Yeah. Blade Runner is clearly not doing that. Well, I don't know with the stuff on androids. I mean, I think we could be we could be completely talking about what is it to be human and the yeah. replicants and and it just so happens that we yeah. not, you know. I think I think with this film that was it. We'll save that for later because we are going to be talking okay. about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, but something that you guys are already sort of touching on is um, that the original is now very much recognized as academically worthy of study. Um, mm -hmm. People have written articles, they've written books, and obviously like within academia it's very easy, both in, in film, adaptation, what have you, to talk about this film in, in those kind of terms in a way that um, not as many sci-fi films are kind of welcome in that realm the way that Blade Runner is. Um, so what is it about this film, besides what you've kind of already mentioned, that makes it so appealing not only to fans but now to scholars as well? I, I think, um, as we were saying earlier about the, you know, the manipulation of genre is really mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, you know, film noir has always been, at, is, well not always, but since the 50s I guess, maybe a little earlier with, with Hollywood. And I, I'm I, that's the thing that always got me about it and always made me think, oh, we should really look at this a little mm -hmm. more, I should anyway, um, was how it combines so many different genres. I mean, even with the way that Deckard stands sometimes and his handgun and stuff, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, like a Western almost in some yeah. ways. And I, that's what I think is so interesting. In terms of genre study, yeah. it's just a way of, and maybe I'm just going around in circles here, but like looking at so many different crossed wires Definitely. and of just how they all come together to describe a moment in time for Hollywood, that's how I think, yeah. anyway. Yeah, it does sort of have that processing of so mm. many different layers of things happening. Mm. I mean, also, it's um, it's one of the... 
it's one of the more intellectual science fiction films yeah. and it's yeah. and you're right Jim I was wrong earlier mm. when I said it, it's not a film of ideas it is I just always easy. think of it as more of a, a spectacle <laughs> film but in as far as it is a film of ideas it's a very intellectual film yeah. of ideas um, it it's clearly moving away from earlier pulp traditions so if science fiction film really mm. begins in a major way in the 50s with you know bug-eyed monsters and flying saucers that really continues through the 60s you know, Blade Runner comes along later, much like with, you know, I'm skipping through time here. But Blade Runner comes along and, and kind of thinks things through and, mm -hmm. and is kind of um, clearer in its thinking processes about those things and uses science fiction less to um, to provide uh, a, a rollicking couple of hours and more to, um, to build mood, to build atmosphere, to build environment, mm. to, yeah. to do that kind of world building y, moody, tony, feely stuff. Um, and it's not alone in doing that in science fiction at the time but it, it's um, perhaps I think the best example of the era of, of films doing that so it stands out because everything well not everything but lots of things before and around at the same time were kind of rollicking good times Yeah. also in terms of academia I mean yeah I, I think I mentioned about postmodernism yeah. it's, it's, it came along at the same time that writing around postmodernism was becoming mainstream mm. at least in academic circles gotcha. and the concept of postmodernity was becoming fairly commonly discussed particularly mm -hmm. Frederick Jameson's conception of postmodernity what they call the hysterical sublime <laughs> um, which Blade Runner kind of isn't really about but could easily be co-opted to be about yeah, yeah. and at the same time you have academic work by people like Jean Baudrillard Simulation yeah. and Simulacra yeah. which are really about the what is real and what is not real mm -hmm. and I think the philosophical questions that are embedded in Blade Runner are questions that really resonated with the sort of developing currents of scholarship, kind of philosophy, especially philosophy about the media. Mm -hmm. You know, who are we? What are we doing? What does modern technology mean? How are our lives affected by technology? Yeah. And of course, Blade Runner now looks completely retro. Mm -hmm. Completely retro. It looks like the 1940s watching it. For me, it is more <laughs> noir than most noir movies. But I think it felt, in marrying those questions to this very rich atmosphere, it provides very fertile ground for kind of discussion. And there's there's quite a few books about, I remember you know finding books about Blade Runner when you couldn't find books about many science fiction yeah. films in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. precisely because it is asking these sort of, or at least dealing with these kind of philosophical questions at a time when there's a growth in philosophical and critical work about what yeah. it is to be human in a modern media age. Yeah. I think mm. a lot of that is carryover from the book, obviously, mm. yeah. being written by yeah. Philip K. Dick and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. The book's and pretty bonkers. Though, I, I yeah. mean, in, in true Dickian style, it's you never know what's real and what isn't, and that's what happens when the author suffers from schizophrenia. Um, <laughs> it's a very common thing that carries through a lot of his work um, throughout his entire period of writing, is you've got this questioning of reality and what's real and what isn't, and, and usually the end being does it matter? Mm -hmm. um, and usually most of the conclusions at the end of these things is, no, we don't care. Um, and I think Blade Runner carries a lot of that. And even the new one, even almost more so, um, to what extent does an artificial life not count or count um, in comparison to what's considered real? Um, and I think that's, as much as it was a big thing for the original one, um, has become almost weirdly bigger in the second one but in a more subdued way i guess if that makes sense yeah. mm -hmm. and also just like as a cult object as well it's worthy of study because i think it's a weird cult film yeah, yeah. because i think a lot of um films kind of attain the sort of cult status through 
um, sort of like subversive readings or through um, identification by certain um, subcultures. Whereas yeah. Blade Runner doesn't really seem to be like that. I think yeah. people like the cult following around Blade Runner is for all the things that Blade Runner was set out to mm. be about anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so it feels like it's a film that was kind of like in its bones, like not designed to be mass popular. Yeah. With, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it being a flop on release is perhaps inevitable considering what the film is. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the things that I love about the new Blade Runner is that it shouldn't exist. Yeah. Like that, by Correct. all rights, yes. it should not exist. Yeah. And I'm not saying it in the way that Jim is going <laughs> to. I think it's a wonderful movie. I, what I'm saying is that it's a massive budget, yep. um, huge uh, Hollywood star in, in, in your leading role. It's a 35 year late adaptation mm -hmm. of a film that flopped on its initial, <laughs> or yeah, semi flopped on yeah. its initial release. Um, it's gambling all that money, all that budget on what is actually a very niche um, original base. film. Yeah. Like, it's, Blade Runner is still um, not your blockbuster movie. It's still not um, a safe bet, yeah. I suppose. Um, it's got a large cult following and it's achieved a certain recognition, but it's still, I don't think, a safe bet. So it gambles a lot of money on, on that, yeah. a whole lot of money on it. And no film studio in its right mind should be gambling that much money yeah. on an unsafe bet. No, absolutely. So it has no right, and it's an intellectual film, you know, it's oh, a film about ideas, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So it's a film that really should not be. Yeah. And yet there it is, being wonderful and glistening <laughs> in the day and absolutely. night. 150 million dollars for it, exactly. And yeah, yeah and also about the this sort of niche, uh, it's got a niche um, following and a niche audience, yeah. which kind of is very protective about Blade Runner. And we, in, like, on an intellectual level, five years ago, probably wouldn't really like the idea of a Blade Runner mm. sequel. To yeah, honest, I can remember, as I said, like I, I came intruders to coming in. Yeah, <laughs> I came to it kind of late, as I said, and when they announced it, I was like, preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> sequel? Yeah, madness. And then, yeah. like, Ryan Gosling, I was like, maybe, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, it, it is a film that I kind of felt like I, I didn't really deserve, you know what <laughs> I mean, watching it, because it's just got so many grand ideas in it, yeah. and it's, you know, so polished, and... It is it. The biggest irony was that before we saw it at the cinema, I did. There was a trailer for Thor Ragnarok on oh. um, before, and I was yeah. like, you know, that's the two different extremes really of yeah. science fiction. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I think um, talk about the sequel really started kicking off around mm. the time of Prometheus's release, ah. really, and that was another. That's another um, sort of long, like long-awaited yeah. sequel <laughs> return to this. But, um, but Aliens, Aliens, exactly the same. Alien mm. is oh, a yeah. largely unpopular. Oh yeah. Film. Mm. You know, it did a bit better than Blade Runner on its first release, yeah. but did not perform particularly mm -hmm. well. R-rated science fiction film that um, <laughs> Fox have been trying to make happen yeah. over and over and over again. And these films, they do okay, but they don't make a huge amount of money. Yeah. I think Prometheus is the highest grossing alien film Ever. Oh no, yeah. absolutely. But, um, um, that's an appalling fact. And then yeah. it, it, it they're became not, like not a massive disappointment. It, it's, it's amazing how committed Fox have been to re yeah. redoing Alien films over and mm. over again, yep. when actually the audience base has never been massive, you know? Yeah. Um, so kind of following that, do you think the new film, film appeals to nostalgia, or is it just trying to be new and daring in its world building, like the original was trying to do, or is it kind of a mix of both? I, I thought it was a mix of both. I mean, one of the many things that I liked about it was that um, there's a lot of, you know, these really big spaces with very few mm. people, and especially when they go into the, the Wallace uh, yeah. headquarters. And uh, it all comes down to tiny little screens, as we were talking about earlier, you know, sitting yeah. tiny little analog-looking screens. And I, I liked how they kept that with um, a lot of the arc, you know, menus and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. there's, without trying to give too much away, there's bits where audio logs from the first film yeah. are revisited. 
Uh, and I, I really like that, you know, subtle little nods. And uh, I did also notice there was a couple of sound effects borrowed and things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did go, oh, well, that's <laughs> the sound of Machine B in Blade Runner. <laughs> you know, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but I, I think it was handled with um, sufficient respect and distance, I think, as to be really well considered, actually. Yeah. I thought it was good, a bit of mixed both. See, what I, I liked about it, or one of the things that I liked about mm. it most, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but um, one of the things I liked about it most was the ways in which it operated within the constraints of being a sequel to the original. So the original was imagining a future which didn't come, yeah. or hasn't come, unless yeah. you know, in the next two years, two years we go through yeah. something <laughs> radical. Um, and the brands and so forth that are, are kind of um, yeah. out there in the advertising, Atari and so on, mm-hmm. uh, drawn from the original, not drawn, the, the yep. Soviet Union yeah. still stands. Oh, that was in so funny. Yeah, that yeah. was interesting. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, that's not exactly our world. Mm-hmm. But so it takes the constraints of the original and pushes forwards with them. So the question about nostalgia, I think, is quite interesting. Because mm. for me, this was not a film that was nostalgic. Um, it was a film that was progressing. It was doing something new within an existing world mm-hmm. and kind of testing those ideas. What happens to this world when um, 30 years have gone by, when there's been um, a famine, when um, replicants have been allowed back onto the planet, when there's mm. been the blackout? Um, what happens to the world then? So it's if it were being purely nostalgic, if it were a nostalgic film, it would be revisiting the world of Blade Runner and reproducing it. Yeah. As it is, it's taking those, you know, the, the wonderful metaphor of it for me is taking those giant billboards of the, uh, of the Japanese lady from mm-hmm. the, the original film and having them literally walk off the billboard and dance around in holographic 3D through mm-hmm. the streets. It's, it's not nostalgic, it's doing something new with it. It's mm-hmm. taking it to new places. I mean, for me, it just wasn't quite nostalgic enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to some extent, I suppose, because what I want from Blade Runner is that that rich atmosphere. Yeah. And um, I liked the film, but I didn't love it, and I had issues with it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think that's because I love Blade Runner so much. And actually, over time, what I have liked about Blade Runner has changed and become yeah. much more about the atmosphere than the story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And actually... Um, I have a few issues with the story, but, <laughs> but only really towards the end. Uh, it was really that, you know, if Blade Runner is, for all the facts, a very bleak film, yeah. it's really alive feeling. The spaces feel alive. It feels densely populated. So and you're people, yeah. outdoors. And the, the film has a certain kind of life to it. And I think 2049 is, is but deliberately, by design, a much harsher mm. vision of the future. It's yeah. much harsher in terms of the lighting. Um, it's much harsher in terms of... The world it is seeking to depict, and, and on the one hand, that's that, that's very um, admirable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because it's trying to do something slightly differently, yeah. and you know, it opens in daylight in the countryside, right? It doesn't open in the city at night, which are all the things you expect yeah. from Blade Runner. There's a lot of white light, so it doesn't have that sort of rich look. Um, there's a lot of interior scenes and mm. small scenes, small dialogue scenes. Yeah. Um, it's not noir for one. Yeah, yeah not that's noir. true. Yeah, it's, it's not it's a noir film. And I suppose yeah. it's, I missed that, that sense of noir yeah. in the film. And, and I felt that this much harsher, grimmer kind of future, and the one that was very compelling mm. through a lot of it, and I enjoyed a lot, many, many aspects of it. Um, but I felt like it was... It, it's not so much nostalgia for the first film because it it does yeah. it does have nostalgia it does call it back I just don't think it it's brings back characters yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole second half of the film is about investigating the first film <laughs> right? it throws all that away oh, like, no, it's, no, it's no, not it primarily interested in nostalgia Harrison Ford I'm going to do some mild spoilery territory here Spoiler so you shut your ears guys um, 
Harrison Ford pops up in, in the final reel, yeah. you know? He's back mm-hmm. to like the last wow. third of and the And then movie. it completely becomes his film. And the story it really does. I would argue that it does it. He becomes yeah. a damsel in distress. He in is, a yeah. Car. He's, he's the like, MacGuffin. Yeah. That's right. it. He just becomes MacGuffin Harrison Absolutely. Ford. He drives right. the story because it becomes an investigation of his past. But for me, the investigation of his past is the B story. Yeah. The A story is Ryan Gosling. I felt like Ryan, this is really in spoiler territory mm-hmm. here. I felt like Ryan Gosling was reduced to a henchman once um, Deckard comes along. And, and mm. that's not, and you know. I'll say more about this if we get the opportunity but I guess the point I wanted to make is that it does become more concerned with nostalgia and callbacks as it goes on it return it brings back certain characters mm. it, it do- and you know it, yeah. it really is about their relationship and what happened to them well, um, it brings back those characters and then quite literally forward. shoots them in the face yeah well that's true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like kind of in another one they get the final scene do you know what I mean and, yeah. and so well, technically K gets the final oh, no, I suppose, no, yeah that's right they get the final scene that's true yeah he just voice, dies yeah. on the steps doesn't he oh thing. man poor guy <laughs> are we, we fine oh, spoilers we, yeah, yeah we're, we're spoiling like crazy yeah. I, I will put it in the morning yeah but I think like K I mean we think he's dead but we'll see like those troopers but um yeah, I think that is an interesting thing. And the fact that they brought Harrison back, which wasn't a sure thing when they were in the production of this. They had Gosling for like months ahead of time and only like weeks within got Harrison. Ford's, he's always had a very difficult relationship with the film. I yeah. Mean, really rejected it and didn't want to yeah. talk about it. Yeah, and, and now it's, it's actually shifted. Um, and depending on how it continues to do in box offices, um, both the director and Ford have agreed that they would be up for returning for sequels and this might become a franchise. I'm interested to hear what you guys feel about that. Come on, I think we <laughs> I haven't heard Nash. <laughs> <laughs> Nash, Nash how, what, how do you feel about? Uh... Um, well, when I when I think of Blade Runner, like the the like the story of the first Blade Runner is quite low actually for me on the list of reasons why I like Blade yeah. Runner. Same here. Yeah. And my like my perfect Blade Runner sequel would be a whole new story mm. tell, told within this world as opposed to yeah. this continuation of That's... the Deckard saga because yeah. I feel yeah. that he works best when he is a example of the average Blade Runner as opposed yeah. to this special Blade Runner who yeah. has this special experience mm. and has to, and then that story is carried on into mm. 2049. I felt that the whole sort of like fates aligning it within the film removed like was disappointing yeah. to me in a way because it didn't feel as though this is a story about how life is in the future. It was more a story yeah. of um, life is future, like life in the terrible is future. But then one man arises from mm. the, the voids of um, yeah. history to like save no, And I feel agree. that yeah. like that doesn't feel like Blade Runner because Blade Runner is. It wasn't epic. Like, like that, I feel that Blade Runner works best when it doesn't give set like easy out. It doesn't really yeah. like give like inklings of resolution. I right. feel like it works best when. Um, the pessimism is the thing yeah. and that's mm. what you need to deal with it's just a guy um, doing a job not an epic exactly destiny. yeah I and, and yeah. you know I, I it took me the weekend to think mm-hmm. i just wish it had been about ryan gosling's character i just okay. wish that yeah. there'd been a moment where and that's why i say it's something to do with deckard i just wish there'd been a moment when you know there's a there's a really interesting quite a noirish detective futuristic movie about discovering certain things about replicants and, mm-hmm. and you know investigating that and then there's it ties it very neatly to the other film in a way that I kind of it's not that I particularly care about Deckard because the whole point of that film is 
they're rather distant figures. Mm. You know, I feel rather distant from all of them. But I didn't want it to be like them mm. having these kind of messianic. I really didn't. Things. I was disappointed by that as well. I really didn't like. Oh, great messiah child. That, yes. I was happy it wasn't Kay. That made me a little happy inside because I'm like, oh, what a surprise! The masonic like mm. guy finds it's him. The fact that they Alora Dannoned it and just made it a little girl and then made it her was a nice change. But still, like you, I was disappointed that they went all messiah figure. Well, it, it only on took it. me a while to realize that I'd been really, you know. I'd been really enjoying it for two hours yeah so i got an awful lot of enjoyment yeah. out of it before i started to find that maybe yeah. there were just slightly too many callbacks here and, yeah. and we're starting to get wrapped up in an aftermath to a story that i would much rather have just been left yeah you know i, I don't want to know what happened to Deckard. And yeah and i want i want that thing to slam across and you never to see them yeah. again and maybe she died maybe he died maybe he was a replicant maybe yeah. he wasn't and if, to its credit the film doesn't reveal that but um you know it does it, it I, I think I differ in thinking that it it took a direction where it becomes more in seeking to provide fan service. Yeah. That as a fan is the thing that bugged me. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't think we do disagree about that. At all. <laughs> I, I wish Harrison Ford hadn't come back for this movie. Mm. Um, I wish that that the K story had been the focus. Um, mm. I wish it had been a. I don't mind the fact that it it has those connections yeah. back and forth. But I just I do think that Harris Ford is is needless in this movie. There's yeah. there's very little point to him. We, are we all agreeing though? Because all the reviews are like Harrison Ford's great in this. It really comes alive when Harrison Ford. Um, I thought it dies yeah. when he's on the screen. I thought it was um he, well you know I I'm a big Harrison Ford fan. So yeah, I, guess I some think he can of, really add something. Uh, yeah, I mean I like the idea of it, and uh, um he added for me anyway. The way I saw it was that he added another layer into the mystery of of K really because mm. I I did I thought it was a very good central character Ryan yeah. Gosling and um, you know this whole question about his heritage and stuff like that I, I can see where they're going with saying well that's the past and we're going to kind of move on from that a little bit but maybe uh, as yeah especially towards the end the whole Harrison Ford thing came a bit laboured I yeah. think and a bit not forced that's not the right word um, Don't let us spoil it for you. Yeah, James, if you like. No, it. no. I, I, as I said, I, I think I'm a bit more optimistic about it than you guys. Cause I, obviously, I do. I thought it was really good, especially the scene when um, it was um, they brought Rachel back. Yeah, and that oh, was that. That was pretty cool. I mean. I mean that's that's probably that had yeah. that uncanny moment where it's like uh, with other films now where they put the the new the old face on new body and yeah. they've been doing that a lot in sci-fi and every time they do it you're just like mm. yeah <laughs> so uh, you know um, I I guess I'm a bit more forgiving with it than yeah. everybody else here was yeah. but you know I, yeah, I yeah. thought it helped the K plot I think um, I think I like this is complete aside but no? I just think <laughs> the um but the Rachel in Blade Runner twenty forty nine emoted more than Sean Young did. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look more like, than Sean Young I mean, yeah, everyone yes. in this film emoted more than anyone in the original Blade <laughs> Runner. Like, everyone's then, very flat in and that. Then except and then for, except for Kate. Like, he, he emotes yeah. once when he finds out that maybe he's going to die, and then yeah, he like gets angry and tosses bit. a chair. <laughs> he just goes like, rah, and that's it. That is the last out. time he emotes. <laughs> and he's fine. And then he just, you know. Um, which kind of goes into the new sort of replicants. In the new film, it clarifies that replicants are actually genetically engineered superhumans, not in fact robots in the mechanical sense. Um, does this change anything with respect to the role of replicants within sort of the science fiction tradition? Do you guys feel? Well, hang on. It it, it clarifies that in this film, it at does. this time, they are biological creatures. It doesn't say anything about what happened in the past. I oh, know, but my, my, I think Blade Runner itself is fairly clear that they're yeah. just human. 
Yeah. I think so. Basically, yeah. and that's the whole point of the questions it's asking. That they're just they're, superhumans, not well, robots. Well, yeah, they're, yeah. But they're human in the sense of they're not robots. Yeah, no, no, no. But there's clearly something new about these mm. new ones. You know, there's something different about the replicants in this. Mm-hmm. Um, not least in that that something has to be different because they're allowed into society mm-hmm. in a, in a way that they weren't historically. Yeah. Um, and I think you know the timeline of it is is fairly explicit that something has changed, yeah. that mm-hmm. something is different now. So the replicants that we're seeing here don't really clarify anything about what was going on in the original Blade Runner because they've been shipped off world, um, they've been slaughtered on Earth, uh, they're reinvented, reformulated, yeah. go through several different um, periods of progress and end up as different creatures mm-hmm. which suddenly emerge back yeah. onto to planet Earth yeah. as fully integrated members of society. So I think there's been a bit too much focus on kind of um, the clarification that this film offers around the original. Mm. And I think it would be a shame if it did clarify things about the original, because one of the lovely things about the original is it's an incomplete text. Yeah. You don't find out everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm always hesitant when people say Blade Runner 2049 shows us this about the world and, and, and that <laughs> makes sense of the old one because. So yeah. I just don't think it is. I think to its credit, yeah. it's done the time jump. It said technology's come a long way. It said the history of Earth has got messed up and finally found its way back to some form of stasis, but it's a different stasis. Mm-hmm. So let's see what else happens. Yeah. So I, I'm just a little bit hesitant around that. Yeah. That play. Yeah. Because I think what they, uh, you don't really get this unless you watch the the three shorts that they released like on YouTube. Mm. So in the cover, the in between time is that they're now built with a a pre-designed death date. Right. Per the buyer, yeah. uh, and they are utterly obedient and will kill themselves if you tell them to. Uh, and that was how Wallace sold his new replicant design and was allowed to make them as well as him convincing them that like we're not gonna make it in space unless we do this. Um, so I think that was kind of an interesting shift compared to the ones of the originals. And that, that interaction between the six and then Kay's newer model yeah. of just like, we don't run, so I've never had to hunt one of my own. Mm-hmm. Because essentially, they would just be told to kill themselves and they would do that. Um, which I think almost makes it an even bleaker sort of perspective onto these these creations that serve in in a sense the role of robots in a lot of other films as just the slave labor force and all of that which i thought was an interesting update to from what we had before and perhaps just like more info than we ever had on yeah. the ones before yeah. as well mm-hmm. i mean it's also gauging in uh, a post battle star version of yeah. replicants and artificial the life skin and, job and, right and, and it's to some extent asking those questions around to what extent is um, a biological machine different from a machine exactly. um, because if we can order these replicants and they must obey yeah. so what if they're made of flesh yeah. they're clearly something different but does it mean I mean does it render the whole film slightly meaningless you know that's my, my sense is that if again super spoiler territory <laughs> but if, so Gosling's character is a replicant you know that from the start yeah. um, he's given these various tasks mm-hmm. by Mad- Madam Robin Wright, great yeah. performance, great, all great performances. Yeah. He has this fake girlfriend, <laughs> Joy, um, who's just a projection, isn't yeah, real. Just an AI. Um, and and you know because he's fake, doesn't really matter that she's fake. No. But he's obviously looking for something, and yeah. then he he does various things and seeks out Deckard, and ultimately fights for him and and kind of sacrifices himself. Um, he is at one point presented with this suggestion that there is an army of rebel replicants yeah. so really another thing the film didn't yeah. need to do that is really dodgy because it doesn't go anywhere or yeah. do anything with um, and that that really bugged me but is he is he doing anything other than just what he's told does this does the story matter because it seems like he does go on a personal journey 
and discovers things about himself and memory mm-hmm. uh, and you know if if they're just compliant and obedient well he did what he was told mm-hmm. so he sat up he also lies to to madam um yeah at one particularly at one point where you know he says the job is done when yeah. the job is not done yeah. um so he's not he's not like that he's, at all. he's breaking it yeah, yeah he's yeah. showing that they can actually break with that um, and which, I have to say, I absolutely loved the scene where it shows their sort of PTSD. Oh training. my goodness! That's, that's, and it's obviously a, a revisitation of the Voight Kampf scene. Oh yeah. Yes. Again, in a much harder, oh, I, I, nastier yes. way. Yeah, that's I, fantastic. I very much like that the Voight Kampf test um, has been condensed into just an iris scan. Now it's very, yeah. Yeah. Very, no, but not just that that bit it's, where he has his. It's yeah, like in a cell, orange in a cell. conditioning. Dun, dun, that was great. Yeah. yeah, yeah it, that, was great. that was really oppressive and just like mm. way. Jeez, wow, okay. But again, I love the fact that there's just no explanation of it. It's a baseline yeah. test, just go in and it, that's yeah. what you get of it. Yeah. You get a little, you, there, there is a little bit of like yeah. writing appears on the screen. Yeah. Oh, I say PTSD baseline, it doesn't tell you what you it get, is. Yeah, you get it more later when, when he is on the fritz and you see that they're zooming into his throat, like they're yeah. analyzing mm. body language. Yeah. It's not his voice, it's how is his body responding to these things. Mm. And because he's... Baseline test. When yeah. We talk about how close he is to baseline. Yeah. You're miles off your baseline. You're miles off your baseline. Yeah. You better get back there by. Mm-hmm. It does suggest that these replicants are capable of moving far exactly. away from being um, commanded machines. And the second they do, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. was her implication, where that's why he had to lie. That yeah. saved his life by lying. So she's like, "Okay, you did the job. That's why you're all shook up because you made it clear beforehand that this was going to mess with you a bit. I'll give you 48 hours to sort that out." Yeah. And mm-hmm. then. I like to think that there's a giant mincer in the basement. <laughs> yes. Or the Ryan Gosling. The, it's gone all soiling green. Or Ryan Gosling vacuum packed. Oh yeah, it's like a mix of moon and and the sort of Somni five four five one, where it's just like oh, and then we just process you into liquid and we feed it to the masses. Can spoil everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's throw in the end of the prestige there. Then there's thousands of Ryan Gosling. Oh, the Gosling. All right. That's like my basement. Uh, a main part of the new film like the original is something we sort of touched on is what is real and what is reality and do you think 2049's update of this complication was very successful Um, because some have said that the world of the film is very close to our like closer to ours than ever um, as well as sort of like sort of for the, uh, the the nature references and the collapse and populist things, but also with sort of respect to the, the, the feeling of interaction with technology and the relationship being non-personal. Did you guys feel like it was kind of keeping up with the real reality questioning or was that kind of more in the background of what was going on? And I don't understand. There was a lot of questions, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, so let, let's start with, um, do you think that this one is kind of keeping with the what is real, what is reality sort of feel that the original had? I liked, um, there was one line towards the end, again, major, major spoiler oh, territory, was, but um, there's a bit, um, literally almost five, you know, five minutes before the end when Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling, he says, well, what does that make me mm-hmm. to you? And uh, the implication is that, well, regardless of whether, you know, he's not actually related to him, but technically he is because his memories are still there. So they're still kind of related in a strange sort of way, because although he didn't actually physically experience it, he has because of the the memory implants, which is this whole idea Mm. of memories and the fallibility of memory and how it can be changed. And I think that's very... Uh, up to date and I, I think you know what with um, cameras and stuff being in everybody's pockets and things the ability to capture images and things like that is is 
very considered in this new movie in a way that I think couldn't really have been predicted in Blade Runner, just because of the time, yeah. I guess. It, it's sort of there, there's an inkling there. Yeah. Um, but I, I really did like that very much. That was good. Yeah, even how she was like manipulated, it looked yeah. like, a, like a big camera lens thing. Yeah, well, the, the technology, if you're looking for it to be an extrapolation of modern technology, you're looking yeah. in the wrong place with Blade yeah. Runner, because yeah. you know it, it certainly deals, I think, with very relevant kind of themes. Mm. And that's what I mean about it being harsh. Yeah. feels like the product of a harsher society than the 1980s um, but you know it's a, it's a science fiction film where no one uses a computer <laughs> and a science fiction film where no one looks at a screen really, beyond these literal kind of yep. things the analog right. K now has a mobile phone but yeah. before there's the video phone mm -hmm. in the nightclub and things like that so uh, a purely tech the representation of technology it's been modernised but it is trying to do that thing where it builds on mm -hmm. the, the particular technological state yeah. that Blade Runner itself seem to have reached 30 years previously. Uh, in terms of what is real and what is not real, I mean, I think it's... The original Blade Runner was about memories. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole point of that film is how can it know, not know what it is? Memories, you're talking about memories, right? Like, yeah. it's about that's the, the thing that Rachel has that none of them have previously had. And now we're just in a world where it's really interesting. They know the memories aren't real. They know that I've just got these memories, they just help me. Mm -hmm. I'm a machine. That's a fascinating... That's, again, it's yeah. much harsher. Yeah. You know you're not a person, but we gave yeah. you this anyway just to get by mm -hmm. in this messed up yeah, world. It's, it's, it's just amazing. so that you have really. social... It's an um, emotional cushion yeah, exactly. is how they describe yeah. it in the original one. And the fact that all this time in society still calls them skin job. Like, obviously, you get a lot of the ostracism, like how Kay is discriminated against by his fellow tenants and even That's his great. colleagues. That sequence is all great. of that, where you very much, he is in the position of this other. He is this outside force that is tolerated because he does a job mm -hmm. that they can't do, which I thought was an interesting sort of integration and makes you wonder if just like did everyone at the precinct know that Deckard was a replicant the whole time as well? Well it's never clear. No, it it's never clear. I think one of my favourite innovations of the new movie in terms of the kind of science fictional world and its relationship to contemporary anxieties is the introduction of the AI yeah, of, of the girlfriend. Yeah. Um, I think one of my favourite lines in the movie is where um, the replicant prostitutes mm -hmm. approach um, Kay and kind of try and hit on him a bit and they see his, um, his projection device for yeah. the artificial girlfriend and they or the AI holographic girlfriend they say oh you don't like real girls mm -hmm. um, which of course you know real in that sense <laughs> is, is called into question so that notion of artificiality yeah. is yeah, their replicant yeah it turns out she's right, a replicant exactly, as well yeah yeah, yeah. so their replicants criticizing something else of being yeah. unreal when actually that artificial girlfriend I forget her name Joy Joy, Joy. Joy yes of course yes. Joy is, is, I mean, one of the more human characters. Absolutely. And she, yeah. she even calls the replicant prostitute that she then brings in. She says she's real human, mm. even though it turns out she isn't. And so, mm. you, again, you get the sort of layers of, like, what is and isn't, and does it really matter at this And point? ultimately, that entire discussion, I mean, there are all sorts of problems yeah. in kind of gender terms around this, but um, mm. all of that discussion is around um, who is real enough to satisfy the man. But yeah. Of course, he's, he's artifice as well. Yeah. Um, exactly. he's, he's not a real man in inverted yeah. commas so I think that's a really smart way of doing this I think building a different type of artificiality onto a world that is artifice is brilliant really brilliant yeah. and particularly that moment on the rooftop um, where I mean it's it's fashioned after the grand romanticism of kind of those New York romance movies of, of the <laughs> 40s and the 50s mm. and, 
Um, yeah. They're on this kind of neon lit rooftop uh, in the rain, about yeah. to kiss for the first time after she's taken the, a, a, a wandering form. Yeah. And she pauses because he gets a phone call. <laughs> Frozen. And there's something, I mean, you're right that it's not building on the, techno the technology of the contemporary period, but it's building on the ways in which we relate to the technology of the contemporary period. Yeah. How many times have, have we all kind of been having a, a lovely romantic dinner when your phone rings and yeah. it intrudes on it all? Or, or Skyping long distance if you right, haven't one of yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. And then and they froze and you're like, well, well Kind well, of the <laughs> glitchiness of it. When she's trying to wake him up in the car after he's been knocked out and she's glitching yeah. too much to be able to do it yeah. it's Skype, you're having a Skype conversation yeah. like, <laughs> Signal. Um, and the same is true of the, kind of the artificiality of it we, mm -hmm. we all rely on um, different versions of AI, different types of AI in our day to day lives yeah. we're looking at a world of chat bots and, and, and so forth which you know, I, I'm always a bit sceptical about that sort of stuff and the extent to which it will build into our day to day lives and yet there I am using Siri yeah, it's, um, it's Alexa, it's Siri, yeah. it's Cortana so that I think actually what it, you're right, it's not taking the technologies of the contemporary period, but it is building um, the anxieties around those uh, those technologies into the world of these this kind of pre-existing technology. Mm -hmm. um, we may not yet be in a place where we're having artificial girlfriends, yeah. um, but we are in a place where we can imagine um, replicants having artificial girlfriends because we've ourselves built a few layers of artificiality yeah. between us and the ways in which we engage with one another. Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. Um, and also just, um, I think the, because the original was quite concerned about distinguishing between like real and artificial when talking about um, real being humans, artificial mm -hmm. being replicants, and the necessity for um, complicated devices and processes to detect between figure out which whether someone is a person mm -hmm. as a human being or whether someone is a replicant whereas in 2049 we're now in a world where we do have this much more complicated like sort of stratification of artifice but everyone seems to be much more aware of that of what yeah. of how that hierarchy works and um who figures into where and it's and just look up and left and you, we know you're a replicant no exactly um and so it seems that the concerns of the two films seem to have shifted somewhat and that mm -hmm. um it seems a lot more that the film, the, the first film was about this paranoia that real humans feel about the artificial creations that we have made, whereas this film is more about the artificials we have created mm. and their sort of um, paranoia at how they figure into the pecking order of artificiality. Yeah. Um, but the reality of that artificiality, the like yeah. kind of acceptance of that artificiality has kind of been embedded um, throughout. And I don't know if that's perhaps a comment yeah. on our sort of society as well. Um, that we now exist in a, in a moment where these things that we may have once thought of as being kind of removing us from the real world, things like video calls and text messages and all these things, the fact that they've become such a baseline part of um, our sort of day-to-day um, -day social existence um, and now we are concerned with other things kind of attached to that but not, yeah. pure, not like strictly that mm -hmm. thing itself. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of um, echoes of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm rambling. <laughs> and, and even even Kay's relationship with Joy, it, it it's just like by the end when he's walking across the rampart and the big one, the giant billboard walks over and it's like, hey there, Joey, um, and he realizes that this the, the only person he's had a meaningful relationship with is entirely a construct of, as the billboard says, everything he wants to see and hear. Mm. She isn't actually her own person. He's just she has only ever been. The construct that he's wanted her to be and an AI that has just read off of that and responded yeah I think that that was one of the most interesting things about Kay for me is that you know that everything you want mm -hmm. is is the the tagline and he never really shows any uh, I'd say 
anything that approaches like um, tenderness yeah. to Joy even when they're like, you know, oh, I love you and stuff like that. I mean... He never says I, he loves her. He yeah. gives her a present and he seems gentlemanly He's, to her. Yeah, he seems respectful and stuff, but I, I did get... Maybe it's just Ryan Gosling's icy stare. But, uh, <laughs> I, I did get the impression that he was kind of... Not dissatisfied, but, well, you know, this is the way things are type yeah. of thing. And, you know, it was just very glassed over look. But uh, then what's the point of having Joy kind of possess or share space with... Um, the the replicant prostitute. That was her idea, mm. not his. He actually stated that he's just like, you don't have to do this. This took him by surprise. Yeah, because... she doesn't have to do it, but he wants her to. Well, I mean, he didn't like... stop her. Yeah, I mean, obviously yeah, exactly, he didn't stop exactly. it, and he responded. There's and... no need for him to do that. Yeah. You know, he could simply have sex with the the, the replicant yeah. prostitute, um, which you know, gender problems again all yeah. over the place. But he could simply do yeah. that. Instead, he goes for it with joy's face but on, yeah only once over. they sort of like sink up right? yeah i think there is a lot of of, of tenderness there between mm. two well it, it, she's the, the only the, thing he's got but when the projector device is mm. smashed yeah clearly it's heartbreaking yeah yeah that's yeah i have to admit so, certainly... and i think that that breaks him even more as he's walking across that platform and gets the realization when that simulation calls him joe he realizes that his joy wasn't some special unique person that had gone sentient and had begun to love him it was just responding in the way it's programmed to respond to its user, and that yes, maybe so that yeah. that may, yeah exactly yeah. yeah. Which to him, it's just like cycles of of these simulated beings mm. having simulated relationships mm. to the point where, as you say, like it doesn't matter anymore because mm. if they're all fake, then the fact that they're all fake is fine. Yeah, no, because I kind of think of it like in the same sort of way that we have these sort of implanted memories as being yeah, this emotional yeah. cushion. This like joy also functions as another yeah. sort of emotional cushion yeah. for. But that's that's yeah. that's great that in the, you know if the first film is about loneliness in the sense mm -hmm. of, it always goes back to Deckard's apartment Isolation. where he just sits on his own, right? And I, you know again I really like that and yeah. I see yeah. it as a as a really intense romanticization <laughs> yeah. of solitude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It really is what it's yeah. trying to do. Man. Whereas this you know Kay's apartment is. For me, Blade Runner is a lot about the spaces as yeah. opposed to the characters. And Kay's apartment is reached his absolutely nightmarish <laughs> walk through the apartment building, mm. and then it is this actually very sterile space mm -hmm. where the you know the girlfriend is there. So it's it's sort of simultaneously less lonely because yeah. she's there. But more lonely because it's, it's just horrible. It's all <laughs> yeah. fake. Yeah. It's almost like white box. You just can't get away from people, can you? Because you know they're in this hallway, and then mm. literally the back wall of his apartment is is a window. Yeah. Uh, which there isn't. I mean, there is a small window in Deckard's apartment yeah, in the first one. At least very. Like, Lisa has blinds. Yeah. Exactly. Right? At least he can shut it, it just, out. Yeah. And instead, I mean, you know, there's this whole thing at the moment, as I said, with mobile phones mm. about not being able to get away from people, but with that not being, have, you know, being able to have any privacy yeah. so you kind of feel more alone than ever even though you're talking to people but I suppose what I found with Joy is, is it contributed to that I, I thought she was brilliant oh yeah, yeah. I oh, it was yeah. An absolutely brilliant performance yeah. very neat clever character and the relationship was fantastic but it just added to that sense of harshness Mm -hmm. You know, that even though there's someone there, it's no longer him sitting on mm -hmm. his own, or it's no longer Deckard sitting on his own. Yeah. Even though there's someone there, it felt like a harsher, more uh, odd, yeah. eerie, uncertain kind of relationship. You couldn't, it, it became more romantic. I, I love the sex scene, and I think, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and I, I think it's, well, yeah, yeah, the quote of the day, yeah. right? Um, but I think it, it, it is a kind of callback in the sense there's also a slightly creepy and odd sex scene yeah. in Blade Runner, yeah. which it is, is referencing. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. that's what I mean. It's yeah. it's not yeah. it's not comfortable. It doesn't. Yeah. And that, again, there's something I like about the film is it doesn't make just choices that we can get behind. This Blade Runner doesn't when it comes to issues of oh, gender no. No. either, right? Yeah. At all. Mm. Which. Um, yeah. But uh, I still felt there was that sense of coldness that mm -hmm. this is a 
different kind of unknowable relationship that had links to a romantic relationship that we might understand but was there yeah. was a core of artificiality to it is another good thing about the film I have almost entirely good things to say about the film <laughs> apart from when it comes to Deckard um, but again he's, he's harsh mm-hmm. you're watching it and it's not it's yeah. not a nice emotional it's, thing yeah I think it's just Kay has got an emotional range that is very narrow mm. Um, mm. so it, it, it's easy to see it where he's, but, he doesn't but, seem to care but then it comes out like when it's broken and when he's he's lost his one but even then I, I never quite bought I, I quite like the way you didn't know with Kay is this, are these sincere Does emotions what yeah. emotions is he experiencing is he, are we just seeing two artificial things going through the motions here yeah. that's a very uncomfortable place yeah. to put you as a viewer yeah. but I find this interesting though that we're, we're saying that um, Joy produces kind of a, a coldness to the film because but of she, the she's a very warm life of warm and cold situation yeah. but if it, and I agree with you it is the situation but how is that any different from um a replicant yeah like how is mm. it any different which is what rachel brought in the first exactly. one i think she was For meant me, to be the warm, same but scene it's yeah. it's um so cool. it's the real copulating with the artificial mm-hmm. it's but don't just you in think this case rachel in the first one doesn't know yeah. she's a replicant she finds um, out pretty quick she though. finds out and she's very upset by it yeah. and it, it her identity is thrown into question yeah. and you know it's it's uncomfortable for different reasons whereas this is they they both know. They both know, and both it, know, yeah. you know, you sense that it's real, but at the same time, you're aware you're watching something that's not real. Neither of them are real. I know the retrospective yeah. reading of Blade Runner is neither yeah, of them are real yeah. either, but I always think the film works really does work better if Blackard isn't a replicant. Right? Um, but this, I, I, I'm trying to articulate, I suppose, yeah. why I felt it had that sort of eerie coldness, no, even in the scenes mean. where it's being warm. You know, yeah. imagine going back to you, they go back to their apartment, and the person there you're speaking to isn't real, yeah. and there's just a table. Yeah. And then he has and some slots. It started with that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's aware of the fakeness of it. It's yeah. a really interesting thing. But that's exactly the same as if it were a replicant, because yeah. they're, they're not real. You see, mm, it, yeah. it always comes down to, and I, and I think along the same lines, but for me, it always boils down to, well, but Joy's not real. Yeah. She's this kind of fantasy creature. She's been built out of her size, but so have the replicants. Yeah. I suppose I mean, so she's not he. corporeal. So it, it really throws up that question of what is real much more directly, that he can't touch her. Yeah. 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 You know, that's very interesting that it's, he's faking. Touching touch, her. Yeah. Yeah. When there's, she puts down the meal and another That's meal appeals on top of it, right? Yeah. It's, you know, there's the reality, and you're much more confronted with real and fake yeah. than, well, they're there. I mean, at least they're there. Yeah. Right, but she's another, I agree I know, with you, but she's another device for doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. very much. Blade Runner itself was doing exactly this yeah. and doing the same thing again, having yeah. the replicants stand in for the same things, the same problems, the same questions, is. Yeah, then you're just remaking. Yeah. Um, but having Joy there yeah. takes mm-hmm. the same questions and casts them just from a slightly different exactly, angle, yeah. which yeah. is um, finds a way to make them disturbing or cold or, yeah. or unsettling once again yeah. when you're already familiar with the idea of replicants, so they can't yeah. quite do that. Exactly. So I, I really I don't see Joy as being any different from yeah. um, from the rest mm-hmm. of them in this. It's just yeah. a different way of of doing the same thing. Do you think it's something to do with perhaps agency, but like the fact that um, Joy kind of like purely does exist to like for the benefit of Kay and all of Joy's actions are for the benefit of things that Kay has asked her to do and when Kay's not there anymore she literally just vanishes, she <laughs> stops being until okay. Kay needs her again whereas the replicants do have not, not, like, they're, not they're not completely free, they're, yeah. still, they're still they're there to do jobs yeah. but they have downtime, they have moments when they like tend to themselves or when like if Kay goes home and he like eats dinner and mm-hmm. talks to his imaginary girlfriend and they're 
and he clearly wants something more of his life and for his life. Mm. Whereas Joy, yeah. all of Joy's wants and aspirations and dreams yeah. are her whole things world that is Kay. Kay mm. wants her to want. Yeah. If you look at it, that's if you look at it from Kay's perspective. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from Joy's perspective, there's no time when she's not on because her consciousness is, only with is switched on yeah. when he's around. Um, so from her perspective, she, yeah. th- it's not like she's then shut off and sits there, yeah. kind of thinking and being like, "I'm <laughs> off now." You know? like, she she's Forward. always on from her yeah. perspective, and you know we we say you know well well she's she exists to kind of satisfy his needs and demands, but yeah I mean that that is true. But there's a sense that um, she's developed into a unique creature because she has to be downloaded from the home computer or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, so she oh, and you lose this memory is. right yeah. Yeah. yeah so she exists solely on the device and mm-hmm. that's why that device matters because she's a unique creature that cannot be reproduced mm-hmm. just like a person mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah the, the interesting thing you know just carrying on slightly from that is the fact that she is the one who constantly reinforces within Kay that he is special and I know Obviously, that is something that he'd want to hear as a person or as an individual, obviously. But it, it, it gets to a point where I, I wasn't entirely sure as to her motive in it. Not in like a sinister way, but yeah. it was quite obvious that she wasn't there entirely just to please him. Because he's like, well, you know, I can just do my job and yeah. keep going. But she's like, well, no, there's something more to you than this. And it, it you know taking him out of not this you know safe routine he has to fight Batista that's not safe yeah. <laughs> you know so like but it's taking him out of that yeah and, and you know going, you're, you're very special you're very this and I, I think she was she was a great character very mm. you know layer and you know carrying on from what we've been talking about you know levels of artificiality I, I think there is certainly it's all about just tears isn't it mm. and um as we're saying, I think, yeah, our, she's getting towards being perfectly sentient and yeah. her own character, really, towards the end, anyway. Perhaps I'm just an old romantic, but Aww. I always read that as um, as she believes that he's special mm. because she loves him. Aww. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, 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 well, let's, let's, let's speculate on Joy's intentions. As has kind of been mentioned, um, there is a notable increase in women in 2049 compared to the original. Mm. Um, and why do you think we're seeing more female characters in this one? Yeah, than but we? they still all get killed. I mean, and they're yeah. all naked as well. They, they are definitely more naked than the menfolk. Yeah, yeah. this is true. Um, but and a lot of them are produced for yeah. purposes, right? Yeah. And one of them is produced from a tube, a, a plastic tube as a ball of flesh, solely so that she can have her stomach slit open her and die womb. on the floor. Yeah. Her, it's basically her it, womb. It's yeah. absol- I, I think that sequence is absolutely appalling. Mm. Like I, I really have problems with gender representation at all. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense in narrative terms. Yeah. Wallace you talks just- about how I can't make enough replicants, really difficult making replicants, I'm just going to kill this replicant. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Really overly sexual violence. And isn't he doing that only to make a rhetorical point to another replicant? Yeah, exactly. It's a real... It's a bit of a... This is the fourth one you've killed today. The problem is there are several bits like that that seem to come from a much dumber movie. Yeah. And, you know, that's an issue. The gender representation, I think, you know, uh, there's something odd about all of us talking about it. Um, this is all just dudes, right? Becky is you, of Becky. <laughs> um, I, I have to say that I, I have no problem with the film being about masculinity, mm. um, personally. And, and you know, leaving aside what I should think, I'm I'm often find those kinds of films quite compelling because yeah. they deal with things that I am interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, Men, men and manly men. I'm not a particularly manly man at all, sadly. But you're interested um, in manly men. 
interested in what manly men think. Me too. Um, and I, I think the Blade Runner itself has this actually rather difficult, quite creepy, quite unpleasant kind of sexual politics to it. Yeah. And on the one hand, that makes the film difficult, and it's reproduced in this film, so it makes this film difficult. Mm. I personally think it gives the film a bit of an edge yeah. that it does things you don't want it to do yeah. and it, there's a nastiness there again and it comes back mm. to that sense of passion there's a nastiness in terms of its depiction of women and, and sexual yeah. violence um, that is uncomfortable uh, and is it almost misjudged certainly misjudged in that scene with Wallace you were yeah. talking about mm. and it results in essentially all the female characters get killed and are sidelined apart from one yeah. at the end who's just this sort of pure kind of childlike figure yeah. um, so I think it's very uncomfortable I think it's in keeping with what Blade Runner did Yeah. Mm. and I think it is it gives the film a, another kind of edge but I think it's probably misjudged in terms of its yeah. current kind of current issues around gender yeah. politics I'm, I'm wondering how many people are going to see it as just being a misogynistic film instead of it being a commentary on misogyny I don't, I don't know in if film it is a commentary or... it might be a commentary but or even just in ads, the fact that all of the ads had women. There wasn't a single ad that had a man in it. Mm. They, were, they were essentially giant fighting boobs in the sky for a lot of Yeah, there are lots of giant naked women all over the place in the advertisements. And um, you know, that's interesting because it makes Blade Runner very much about exploitation and yeah. different people being exploited, Which women is, exploited yeah. for you know, their sexuality and men exploited, mm. male bl replicants certainly, just oh, for yeah. their, their sort of nastiness or their, their physicality. Yeah. Right? Mm. But it, it is true that... The, you know, it probably pushes too far in that direction. Mm. For me, it makes the it gives the film an uncomfortable edge that I quite liked. Yeah, you know, I like to come out feeling that these things haven't been resolved or dealt with properly. Mm -hmm. But I think it also is probably misjudged. Yeah, there's a sequence where um, he's at the the food market, mm -hmm. and um, you get the three um, replicant prostitutes mm. walking across in a triangle formation as if they were bloody Charlie's Angels <laughs> like, with the music playing in the background you get it slows down ever so slightly as if to be like hey look at these sexy bodies for a moment and really that's I don't know then one of them becomes replaceable because she's effectively overwritten by joy like it's it's really I just I found it quite problematic mm. but and then there's love Love. We haven't talked about who's another character. Marvelous um, character. Yeah. Oh, I, love. I, th I think the odd thing with the with with these though is that I found all of the female characters really compelling. That was the thing, yeah. Really compelling. I really like love and um, Madam Joy and Madam. I yeah, thought they everyone. were three great performances that were really magnetic. Mm. Um, but who are they? I mean, we know yeah. nothing about love. Yeah. We know nothing about Madam. Yeah. We know very little about Joy aside mm. from the yeah, things we've discussed we already. Like, they're, they're hollow vessels of characters mm. who are characterised purely by either softness or toughness. Yeah. Madam is tough. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Uh, love is tough. I mean, she's running Joy Wallace's company. She's doing all mm. the work that, that we see that in that she'll company. Squeeze a woman's hand around a glass. Uh, which is cool. Right? Which is cool. But all it serves to emphasise is this woman is tough. Mm. Yeah. You know, all Madam does is 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 drink and give orders. Yeah. Um, She's just tough. There's, mm. there's very little. Else I think to her. she has a more, slightly more interesting relationship with Kay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. You know, I, it's sort of 
maternal, but there's a bit of kind oh, of sexual master desire and there. Type and, of thing going you know, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good take on it. There's that great scene where she's drinking and says, "So, what would happen if I yeah. finish and, this?" And, and yeah, there's sort of an unspoken and sexual like desire. <laughs> on her part. Should I get back also to work? The fact that she could just come at him. She could just say, "Ryan Gosling, take mm. off your clothes." <laughs> yeah, she can. Um, yeah, and she doesn't. No. So there's there's something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Perhaps it's a bit more complex. It's not. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think there's a there are layers to that one. But I think you know it's difficult to think of the representation of women in this film without asking questions around the representation of firstly sexual identity yeah. and secondly um, ethnic minority characters who are basically absent from this film. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think this is a film with representation problems left, right, and centre. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, especially as well. for a film, especially for a film about a futuristic setting, which yeah. is all about globalization. Where globalization, are they? Yeah, Where, and it's LA. I, I think everyone here has been to LA. Yeah. No, uh, we we know how diverse LA is. Mm. I mean, they got the the smog down pat. Yeah. Get all the pollution <laughs> like, in the air. There's so much Japanese. There's in this there's film, the carryover Japanese. Japanese people. <laughs> he gets shouted at in Hungarian as he goes to his flat. Like yeah. we clearly have layers of language there's everywhere. Like uh, Barkat Abdi. Yeah, yeah, yeah like a great so much. As well. But where, yeah, where yeah. are all the minority characters? Where is it? Yeah, you're right. Because the whole point of Blade Runner, I, I guess, is at the back of it is that, you know, nine worlds, we could count them on two right. hands and stuff, is yeah. that everybody who's rich, e.g., white folk, yeah. have, have moved off the earth, yeah. as it were, and everybody who's left there yeah. is either to kill um, other people yeah. or to be in some kind of position of power just because they're, you know, yeah. king of the cockroaches type of thing. Yeah. And uh, you know it's a very interesting, very on the nose mm-hmm. social commentary. But and it, it, you know, in that light, it is kind of a little strange that there wasn't more uh, ethnic minority yeah. groups, considering that that's what it's yeah. saying that the world has gone. That we, had, we had the one black woman purchasing replicants who then got well. cut off. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> so like, oh, can we reschedule this? <laughs> mm. I need to go take care of something. But the first one is a kind of orient has an orientalist. Very, absolutely, yeah, it? but it's, yeah. It's about you know. LA has largely been overtaken by sort of, yeah Chinese, Japanese, mm-hmm. East Asian people, right? Um, but somehow in in not wanting to do that, yeah, they just erased and every every they, possible they had the Somali guy who tested difference. the wood, uh, yeah. and they had the one buyer lady. Um, well, but I think what's what's interesting about that though is that the. One of the reasons why the first film has the Orientalist underpinning is it was produced at a time when yeah. America was was terrified about the economic rise of Japan. Mm. Um, at the minute, we're terrified about the economic rise of China, supposedly in the West. Um, yeah. That's supposedly we're terrified, not supposedly the economic rise. I think it's fairly yeah, undeniable. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's interesting that it shifted away from that. And instead, what we get is a lot of European accents yeah. um, filtering through mm. the movie. Hey, Joy is Cuban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joy is Cuban. Oh, is she? She's oh, Cuban. And one of the prostitutes is Russian as well. Exactly. I, I think yeah. there's that sense of Russia. Of love is Dutch. Yeah. Love, yeah, so we get, it's there, but really subtle. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, I would say... of white as well. Exactly. Yeah. And also, it's like, it doesn't seem to be motivated by anything. I don't see no. any sort of anxiety about, like, the influx of Cubans, no. like, white Cubans and Dutch people. Yeah, in um, California. Yeah. Especially, like, yeah. Like, it's, it's artificial cra- people mimicking exactly. other ethnicities. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's crazy that um, this film, ostensibly set in Los Angeles, yeah. um, is not completely full of yeah. 
um, Hispanic influences and, I mean, and characters. Just him walking down the precinct alone in that like, moment, they could have had a col- yeah. like a rainbow yeah. of colors. Isn't and that though part? Of, I mean, that is an issue that comes back to Blade Runner. That yeah. if you think this is te- about LA, no, it's right. Yeah. It doesn't look anything <laughs> like no, LA. No. It never has. All the high-rise <laughs> buildings and stuff like that in Blade Runner. They have zero connection in any way to yeah. what the Sunshine oh, State that, is that like. Is yeah. uh, you know, it's, it looks yeah. like New York. <laughs> more yeah. like Hello. far more like New York, and it's always a weird choice and I think it's like a, a joke you know yeah. if things have got so bad that this is LA yeah. Yeah. and it's raining in LA yeah. but so hey, it's must have what gone madness wrong is this it's snowing I think part yeah. of that I mean we're really talking about background characters because the, the issue is there's no yeah. foreground characters and we don't even expect that <laughs> the city also because of that sense of it, it comes back to that thing I'm saying about it feels less alive so mm. you have less of the sense of the life of the city mm-hmm. beyond that place where Gosling goes to eat his sushi mm. like once or twice like the screen food place the, the, otherwise the city's very much at a distance yeah. you have no sense of who the street level people are whereas Blade Runner was a film yeah. where you were really felt surrounded by the street level people mm-hmm. all the time yeah. right? and it felt Japanese you know, noodle man yeah exactly and yeah. it's just, They've obviously tried to recreate that scene that he's still eating kind of Japanese food, but now they order it from this thing where like yeah, they just pick it up the at the bottom. Isn't that part of the point though about um, technology and distance and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I think that I, I, mean, I think it's intentional. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. It, it creates then that sense of it feels like there's just a few rooms with white guys yeah. in. Yeah, do you know no, what I mean? It's, 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 it's a, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's always the problem that sci-fi will always face in in that it's depicting the the future, and because it's depicting the future, there is an impetus on it to explain where everyone else is if it's just going to be white men why aren't the women there why aren't the minorities mm. there it's it's something other genres don't necessarily have to deal with or address but because it's choosing to deal with this is what our future looks like it's always got that responsibility to answer well why is our future white men and not other people well one of the answers to that that the film doesn't offer but that we could offer through the film is that a large portion of the inhabitants of that city and certainly most of the characters that we meet are artificially produced true which means that if the um, the algorithms, the yeah. techno, the whatever it is, yeah. the weird plastic tubes that are producing these people are produced by people like Jared Leto's character. Wallace likes white people. Then right, <laughs> so it's it's reproducing a, a kind of a racial fantasy of. Yeah. Is it supposed to be people? though that there aren't that many replicants? I thought the whole point was there, aren't, there just aren't that many replicants. There's also Lenny James. Isn't there? Mm. Oh yeah. Um, but, but if there aren't that many replicants, why is every character we meet a replicant? It seems like yeah. They talk a lot about space. Even in the original, they mentioned the off-world colony is yeah, where the front of everyone's at. But, be, but it's barely. It's like a quick mention for the reason why things are happening, and then yeah. like not dwelt on again. Mm. Besides, like the blimp in the original one being like, "Go off-world, it's great." But in this one, it's actually used as a narrative. It is. There's slave labor off. Well, yeah, that's yeah, what replicants yeah. are always supposed to be. Yeah. But in this one, it's also that um, the uh, the depopulation of the city is partially a result of people moving yeah, off world. Yeah, that's in Blade yeah. Runner as well. Yeah. The whole yeah, point yeah, yeah. of Blade Runner is that his, his apartment block is supposed to be empty. There's no yeah. one living Everyone's there. Moved, yeah. These are just the dregs. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the street level stuff feels busy, but actually it's an underpopulated world mm-hmm. or an underpopulated yeah. city, I, th- I think. And that's why it's decaying. Yeah. Because it's just some people left right? the, the leftovers not. yeah yeah exactly but and, and I never got the sense that was quite so clearly articulated in this well, one. Yeah. again maybe it's just what I've read into Blade Runner mm. I don't know if it's like part like it's, if it's strictly canonical or if it's just yeah. something for marketing purposes but the theatrical trailer for the first Blade Runner does make a point to mention that LA is now a city of 120 million people wow. and that in and of itself serves as part of the challenge of finding the replicants like how do you find mm. four replicants yeah. in a city of That's 120 million people yeah. Which um, yeah, just like it doesn't yeah. necessarily feel like feed into the whole un- like depopulation right. sort of 
mm. um, aspect to it. And like, and like, I do feel that the original Blade Runner felt like a bustling place. Yeah, like, yeah. In, yeah. In a way that like this one like absolutely doesn't. No. Um, but I didn't get this. I think the big decades apartment block being empty. Yeah. Um, felt more that more like this idea that the people who can afford to live in like the Bradbury building have disappeared. Rather yeah, but then than then he goes to the Bradbury building. It's empty. They're all empty. Yeah. There's a sense. Yeah. It, yeah. But maybe it's just that it comes back to that sense of loneliness. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think Possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot. I think a lot of it is just like what's what it's creating is that Ella has become the last bastion of place you can live. Like the rest mm. of the world has gone so crap, you can't live anywhere else. So everyone's come to LA. Still, the apartment buildings are deserted. Exactly. Yeah, I mean they've come there, but it's still like even with that many people, <laughs> you've got vast empty spaces. Mm. And in the new one, I think you, you we kind of get to see a more literal depiction of like these are the vast empty spaces that we've trashed and destroyed. Right, and LA is, uh, sorry, uh, Las Vegas is, is the victim of a dirty bomb. Mm, yeah, and San Francisco is a garbage dump. Right. Um, so or San Diego is San Diego, yeah. yeah. San Diego is a but you shop. can always move to the countryside and yeah. have a lovely farm. Way. So you know that's if, if, only <laughs> if you're only if you're a replicant, though. Uh, I think that was I the garlic for myself. Nice little garlic. Why would you just grow the garlic? Why would you just grow the garlic? I know of all the things, <laughs> just garlic. On that note, uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for for joining me and talking about this this new film and the nostalgic original. It's been really great. No, it's been um, a pleasure. Thank you. A big thanks to Matt, James, Nash, and James for speaking with me today. Blade Runner 2049 will be at Phoenix Cinema Leicester from Friday the 6th of October through Thursday the 19th and stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Robin Wright, and Jared Leto and directed by Denis Veneuve. Our thanks to co-producer Peter Sumkuti and song credit to Badly Stuffed Animals for their song Vanilla Ice Cream. Hope you tune in next time for more talks on films, filmmaking, and the events happening around Phoenix Cinema Leicester. Until then, happy watching.